tonight we're going to go old school. Okay? No PowerPoint. We're just going to walk through this. Okay? And we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. And this is kind of an introduction to where we're going to start next, next year. Uh, we're not going to meet next week because next week is uh, some minor holiday I can't remember right now. But has uh, something to do with Christmas. And then the first Wednesday of January, we're going to finish, or I guess tonight we're going to finish our apologetic series, which has gone basically a year. And we're going to start walking through the book of 1 Peter verse by verse. So I'm looking forward to it. If you're looking for a way to start out your New Year's Bible reading plan, if you do that type of thing, or just something new to work through, start working through 1 Peter. It's an awesome, awesome book because it's in the Bible, right? And so uh, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, and then we're going to look at um, Messianic prophecies, prophecies about the Messiah. And we actually looked at this, I think, about two years ago on Sunday morning, some of these passages, but we're going to try to to rework it and use it um, in a way that we can explain it to, uh, to other people. So 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, the Bible says, concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long or angels desire to look. That's an interesting finishing phrase, right? That the whole concept of grace, and when we say grace in Christianity, what do we mean by that? Right, undeserved favor, uh, evangelism explosion goes through the uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. And you can kind of use that on your on your hand. And uh, then you can, if they try to run away, then you can grab them with this hand and say, turn or burn. <laughs> Just kidding, don't do that. All right, so, so the whole concept of grace is not something, if we're going like, it's going back to, you know, Bible 101, when there was the rebellion in the beginning and some of the angels chose to follow Satan, Right? And basically, those are the ones that became demons. Do we have a record in the Bible that God ever offered the spiritual realm grace? No. Does God have to offer grace to the spiritual or the physical realm? No. God is holy, right? God is absolutely morally perfect. There's nothing in God that can even come close to sin. So, Imagine this, right? Like, just for a moment, you're an angel, and it's not like a lot of the stuff that we see on TV, because most people in the Bible who actually saw a real angel, a legit angel, actually thought that they were going to die because they were so frightened. That a, a being of that that power and that, that type of just, I mean, overwhelming majesty in a sense, that people almost like, well, they would start worshiping the angel, and the angel would be like, stop, I'm just a messenger, right? Worship God, I'm just here to give you a message. But that angels long to look into the grace of God. Now what we're going to look at tonight is that Jesus was not just some guy who came on the scene. Jesus didn't show up and say, hey, I'm Jesus. 
You guys ready to be saved from your sins? But rather, when we look in the Old Testament, we see that Jesus was the dovetail. Jesus was the fix. He was the fulfillment of what had been prophesied thousands of years before. So we've got tons of notes. Don't y'all enjoy this, right? You come and you're like, we pray for, you know, some time. We do prayer requests. We've got like 45 minutes to do what my college professor would give. This is like class. It is, but it's not. All right. So there is grace here. Let's look at uh, Luke 24 and verse 27. And um, the Bible says, this is a great verse to note as we begin this study. The Bible says, and beginning with Moses and how many of the prophets? All the prophets, he, speaking of Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures things concerning whom? Himself. Now, you know, if you're a prankster, this would have been an awesome place to start, right? It's after the death of Christ, after the resurrection, the disciples haven't gotten it yet. They still think that Jesus is dead, that it's all crashed and burned. And then Jesus is walking beside these disciples. They didn't really recognize who he was. And where does he begin, especially for us hardcore, Wednesday night, committed, Bible lovers, right? Where did Jesus begin to explain the gospel? According to that verse. Beginning with the law, yeah, Moses. I mean, going back to the very beginning there. And then he goes to the prophets, and then he says all of these things, the law and the prophets, point to Jesus. For example, have you ever heard David and Goliath taught like this? David conquered the giant, and God will allow you to conquer the giants in your life. Okay? That's, you know, we get that, right? It's a little bit of an application. But the point of the story of David and Goliath is that David, like Joshua, like Moses, like every other hero in the Old Testament, is not an identity. Like, we don't look into that person to say, how can I be like them? But we look at that person and say, wow, they're pretty awesome, but they're a shadow of Jesus. See, David defeated Goliath. A young boy, teenager, young man, defeated a giant veteran warrior. Jesus, a humble carpenter, defeated death, hell, fear of death, brought, I mean, life. To light, you understand what it what it means to truly live. So all of those things that we look in the Old Testament, when we see an Old Testament hero, we're supposed to see that that is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Does that make sense? Because if we look at the Old Testament trying to say, well, let me get five keys of how Moses was a great leader. We can do that, it's legitimate, but the whole, the overall point is that Moses was leading the people out of slavery, right, in Egypt. And Jesus is the one who leads people not just from the nation of Israel, but from every nation, all who would believe in him, out of spiritual darkness and slavery into true freedom. So all of that to kind of set the scene, we're going to go through a few of these uh, prophecies I think we have 10 or so, so that means we'll probably be able to get through about three. So let's go to number one. The Messiah, the Messiah would be born of a woman. Now let's stop right here. Um, What do we mean by the term Messiah? Okay, that's who he is, but what is the term Messiah, what what does it mean? Okay, anointed one, right? Redeemer. Like, all right, the prophesied one. 
In other words, this is the... How many of you have seen the movie The Matrix? Okay. All right, Fred. Nice. All right. Do you remember uh, the, the first Matrix? Okay. You've got Neo, Mr. Anderson, and all of, the, all of the Matrix people are saying, you're the what? You're the one. You are the one. Kind of like if you, you, know, you love someone and you say to your husband or your wife, you are the one for me. Um, they're saying that you are the one who's going to be able to fix this problem. Jesus is the one, the only one, who would be able to fix the problem. And once you fix the problem, meaning the problem of our sin, right, then all of the issues like how we relate to other people, that can be fixed as well. But not if the big issue never gets fixed. See? So when we say Messiah, we mean the one, okay? Would be born of a woman. Now that's deep, right? You're like, awesome. Thanks, Pastor Jeff. I would think he would, yeah. All right, Genesis 3.15. The Bible says, I will put enmity or... Um, hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The fulfillment of this, Paul notes in Galatians chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of what? Woman. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, some of us are like, okay, he was born of a woman. Next point. Here's, here's one, one just small insight about how the gospel is so radical. In the ancient world, everyone understood that humans were pathetically weak. Okay? Now, today, when you get ill, when you get sick, what do you normally do? Somebody like throw up, you know, you, 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 go, you go get medical care. And most of the, the sicknesses that we incur today, it's just like, oh, so-and-so's sick, they went to the hospital. We don't usually all freak out because most of the time you come out of the hospital. Okay? Not always. But in the ancient world, the, the, I mean, the death rate, the birth rate, it was horrendous just because they didn't understand basic concepts of germs and so forth. But yet that the Messiah would be born. Stop right there. Christmas story. Baby Jesus. And Bryce, great job pulling off Joseph on Sunday. All right. They had like, they had a full, y'all, y'all missed it. If you weren't here for the kids, then you missed it. They had a full like play and all that stuff. It was epic. And so here's the thing. When you, when you, when you reference baby Jesus, that's, he's a human, Right. Once again, very basic. But if the Savior is a child, an infant, then he's vulnerable, right? Infants don't usually command armies until they grow. And what has to happen? Well, normal patterns of human growth. In other words, the fact that the Bible says, God's saying from Genesis 3, I'm going to send the Savior, but he's going to be born as one of you. That's saying, I'm so powerful that I'm going to call the shots, but I'm not going to call the shots to send in some earth man, some like earth spaceman, or some angel person who just like floats down from the sky and he's got this huge sword and he says, I am the Messiah. No, he's going to come through a woman. In other words, he's going to assume what it means to be fully human so that he can redeem those who are fully human, all right? So born of a woman, number two, that the Messiah would be a Hebrew. 
Genesis chapter 12 and verses 2 and 3, the Bible says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who honors dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Most Bible scholars believe that this is a prophecy from the very beginning that the Messiah would come through the Jewish or the Hebrew people. Does anybody remember, um, right, Abraham, before he was Abraham, his name was Abram, okay? So in other words, when God gives you a nickname, he makes it longer, okay? At least in that case. And what country was he in, like modern day, what it would be today? Anybody remember? I don't know if we've studied this. It's Ur. It'd be like modern day Iraq. The first Jew, ethnically, as far as we can tell, was of what ethnicity? Iraqi. Ancients. Let that sink in for just a moment. Now, do we believe that the Jews are God's chosen people? Absolutely. Why? Because the Bible says so. Okay. A lot of people, they try to deny that. But Scripture says that they're God's chosen people. But yet it shows that God can create a people out of an existing people, and that people who exists are totally opposed to God. They worship the moon in Abraham's culture. So I don't know if they were out there with the dogs all together. The dogs are howling at the moon. The people are worshiping the moon. But that ought to be a good, just a little um, application there, that it doesn't matter where a person comes from, right? God can invade that culture through the power of His Spirit. He can invade that situation and extract that person and make them something that their culture doesn't even recognize it could be possible. So let's just, just from the life of Abraham, that's just a small application. Whatever the problem is, whatever the problem issue, whatever the cultural issues are there, God from the very beginning said, you know what, I'm going to go and invade a little culture here of moon-worshipping Iraqis, and I'm going to extract from them one man, and I'm going to make that man into the father of my chosen people, and I'm going to choose to bring the Messiah through them. If we go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 in your notes, Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. This goes back to Genesis chapter 12, who is Christ. Now let's just think for just a moment about Jewish history. Anybody agree that they've had kind of a rough life? Yeah, that's kind of to put it mildly. And if we ever thought, like I was teaching, uh, before I moved here, I was teaching a secular philosophy class at a secular um, university there. And one of the students in the class who was not a believer raised her hand and said, why does it seem like all throughout history people are always trying to wipe out the Jews? And I said, good question, right? And so, you know, you got and you bounced on the springboard and then went into, into the gospel, basically, because... I mean, that small ethnic group, why does it seem that so much of history revolves around them? If you're talking to an unbeliever, you can say maybe it's possible that the Bible is true because a lot revolves around the Jewish people in the Bible, namely the Messiah. And if we see in secular history the Jews being like at the center of all of these major things with Rome, with Germany, right? 1492, Columbus sailed the... 
ocean blue. All right, so blah, right. And uh, in in that same year, guess what Spain did? Exiled all the Jews. Interesting. All throughout Europe, Jews have been persecuted. During the Roman times, they were persecuted. And the Old Testament times, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Canaanites were consistently trying to wipe them out. And it's like, why do you guys keep on being attracted to this small group of very religious, very devout people who say that there is but one God? I think that's powerful evidence that the scripture is true. So not only is he to be born from a woman, but he's to be born from the nation of the Jews. But number three, born from the tribe of Judah. Genesis chapter 49 verse 10 says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. This is a prophecy. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 14. The Bible says, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Revelation 5, 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered and so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And that goes to number four. Not only is the Messiah to be born of a woman through the Hebrew nation, but through a specific tribe, but within that tribe, a specific family, the family line of David. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, the Bible says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. We know in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, it speaks of Jesus who is prophesied, Jesus who was born from the house of David. Now let's stop right here and discuss this just for a minute. If you're going to be in the prophecy business and you're going to try to give prophecies and you're full of it, okay, y'all know what that means. Would it be better for you to give vague, general prophecies or give extremely, extremely specific prophecies? Which works better for a fraud? Vague. But yet in the Bible, we find specific Specific, 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 specific. And here's the point to where we can, with our friends, our loved ones who are unbelievers, just say, now let's just stop for just a minute and say, are we willing to entertain the evidence? And from all that we've learned and all that you have observed, what usually, in your experience with apologetics, with leading people to Christ, with missional work, Jesus conversations, what have you noticed has been the thing or the things that have held back people from trusting Christ the most. What do you think? You have to check your brain at the door, check logic, check check, the evidence isn't there. Okay. All right, yes, like lack of evidence that we just gather together because it makes us feel good or something. What else? What do you think? Well, parts of the Bible are probably true that, you know, can't think all of that really happened. Just, Jesus was probably a good teacher. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah, they try to limit it, right? Good. What else? What are some things that you've seen? Well, you just say that you're good. They don't 
Ouch. Okay. The southern reason, okay, I'm a good person, which we learned several weeks ago that good people go to hell, right? Why? Because they worship their own goodness, right? The focus is upon me. I am good, and it's not on Jesus. And any idol worshiper who doesn't repent stands before God guilty. Whether they're worshiping an idol in India or whether they're worshiping themselves here. But yeah, that's huge. What else? One of many ways. Say what? It's one of many ways. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, it's open-ended. What's that, Lee? Ooh. Okay. Okay. Procrastination. Good. You see, it's an interesting thing. When we study God's word, we see basically an aspect of all of those things. And our culture, something that I've, with some people, you know, usually around my age, guys, is that they know, they know deep down in here that God is real, right? They totally know that they shouldn't be doing the things that they're doing. They know they should be in God's word. They know they should be bringing their families to church. They know they should be praying and being missional in their lives. But they know that if they come to commit to Jesus, okay, 100%, they know that that means that their life has to change. It's time to cowboy up. It's time to check in all of that used gear of sin and say, I'm signing up and I'm enlisting in the Lord's army, all right? So here's the thing, whether it's an intellectual like Ben, I mean, all of these, all of these, these objections, it always comes back to whether it's an intellectual objection or whether it's, I just want to party. It comes back down to, I am the king of my life. Pride. Pride, bingo. Exactly. And that's the core of all sin. So when we're going through these reasons, let's always remember that conversion Um, Being born again, regeneration, it's never just an issue of evidence, is it? It has to have that heart change and that brokenness over sin, that repentance. And that comes, we can use these intellectual arguments to bring them to water, but it's the Lord that's going to have to let your friend the horse drink. Okay, We can't do it. Isn't that kind of freeing in a way? That we have a job to do, but we're not the ones who do the saving. We love people to the cross. All right, number five, born of a virgin. Now, that we're going to get into it deep here um, with something that skeptics always like to respond when you use Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And here's what the Bible says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means... God with us. Awesome. Now, here is the response. Here is the rebuttal from the skeptic. The skeptic says, when you dig into the Hebrew language of Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, there are two words in Hebrew for a virgin or young woman. One is Alma, which means a young maiden or a young woman of marriageable age. Okay? The other is a strict term, Bethula, which literally means a virgin maiden. So the second one, Bethula, means a virgin absolutely and totally. The first one means we should assume she's a virgin because in Hebrew culture, there is purity until the time that they got married. And if you messed up, then 
you were um, you were executed, or he had to marry you, and you were basically shunned. Which word is used here? Not the technical word for virgin, but the word for young woman. So here's what the skeptic says. Jesus was not virgin born because the very verse that the New Testament writers use to say that he was virgin born in its original context doesn't technically refer to a virgin. Now on its face, that's a pretty stout objection, isn't it? It's like, whoa, so what you're saying is that Matthew or Luke actually misunderstood the original context. And if that's the case, then not only could it be that Jesus wasn't virgin born, but that the New Testament writers were playing games with the Old Testament. So then we've got all sorts of problems. But here's how you can solve it. And I I included one of the quotes there uh, in your outline. And I'll just read this quote. It comes from uh, the Wycliffe Bible Commentary. And it says, quote, This well fits the perspective mother alluded to, should be alluded to in this situation. Judging from chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, the typical mother was the prophetess who became Isaiah's wife within a short time after this prophecy was spoken. Therefore, she was a virgin at the time this promise was given, and she serves as the type of the Virgin Mary who remained a virgin even after her miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. So this in the Old Testament, this is so cool, especially if you love the Old Testament. This is an example of a double prophecy. The prophecy in the original context was there with Isaiah, and he's trying to do the right thing. He's got an evil king named King Ahaz, and God says, I'm going to give you a prophecy that your son is going to do amazing things, but yet it was a marriage and issue that not yet happened. But yet if the Old Testament writer Isaiah had used the technical word for virgin, it wouldn't have made any sense for that to be a double prophecy. So it takes into account his situation, but it also forwards to the New Testament to where Mary and Alma, a young maiden of marriageable age. But in that culture, it was assumed that if you were not married, then you were a virgin. So that way you basically kill two birds with one stone. It's a brilliant, brilliant thing that God inspired the Old Testament writer Isaiah to do. So if you ever have somebody throw out that objection, right? Then in the original it wasn't, didn't actually mean virgin. It does, it's just not the technical word for it. Any questions there? I know we kind of jumped into the deep end with floaties on, but that's usually only the hyper-skeptic, the one who just camps out on blogs all day long that doesn't have a whole lot to do, but there are certain people that will use that objection. We'll just say pastors here. Well, or you can just... Just say, hey, we're in this study, and all the notes are on the website, and uh, yeah, but a lot of times when you get into stuff that may seem really technical and detailed, guess what's never a problem? Guess what's never a sin and never lets the Lord down? Is if you actually, I don't know. Let's all say that very quick. I don't know. Well, didn't that feel good? Like a catharsis, right? Because if you ever get bitten by the bug and it jumps around in churches and universities and it's the little bug, little virus called expertitis, okay? And if you ever get the disease of expertitis, whether it's in sports or whether it's in theology or whatever it is, where you have to be right about everything and know every question, that's only a burden that 
God's the only one who's able to carry that burden. And so there's no problem saying, you know what, I don't know, but you, tell you what, I'm going to try to do some research and find out if you really want to know. Because we've all encountered some people, and they throw out stuff like that, not because they want to know what the original Hebrew says, but because they're trying to get you off your A-game. You see, if they can if they can distract you with Hebrew technology, or tech, that'd be weird, Hebrew technological language, you know? they got like Max and typing up, but... but but Hebrew technical terms, they can distract you from getting to Jesus. Because when you get to Jesus, then I focus on my own sin. And that makes me uncomfortable. Because I know that Jesus calls me to be what I cannot be. And that, like you said, Lee, means that I have to give up my pride. So the old term, uh, red herring, anybody know what that means? What's a red herring in debate? False path, right? It's like the bloodhounds are chasing after you and you get some some nasty, stinking red herrings and you drag them across the path and you cause the dogs to go on a false trail. That's what can often happen when we're trying to get to Jesus. So here's the thing. A lot of this stuff, it may just be bait that they're trying to throw to you. Don't take the bait. Just be like Rocky Balboa and go to the body. All right? Go to the heart. But not physically. Okay. Um... I had some stuff here on Mormonism, but we have we have beat that dead horse time and time again. Uh, we're going to give him mercy tonight. So number six, uh, the Messiah not only would be born of a woman, be born of the Hebrew nation, not only be born in the tribe of Judah, not only be born in the family of... You see how this gets just almost almost like OCD? Just like, wow, how specific do we have to make it? But not only that, born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphra, you who are little to be among, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin, here's the thing, not a regular king, whose origin is from what? From old, from ancient days. Who does that sound like? Other than some people who stay in the Senate for like 5,000 years. <laughs> not, not, not your regular person, right? And especially in that, in that time when they wrote of, of old, of ancient days, it had to do with deity. And since they're Jews, there's only one God, so does that mean that God is going to be the ruler of his people. But if that's the case, then why would God come through a city? How could God come unless God is going to be born? And then some people say, hold on, just a second. That's impossible. It's impossible for a man to be God. Is that true or not? It's absolutely true. It's impossible for any of us to be God. That's too big of a jump. We don't have that kind of vertical leap, okay? But it's not impossible for God, if he so chooses, which he has chosen, to become a man. And that's the beautiful picture. It's where our beginning point comes from in our lives and our thinking. That if God decides, I'm going to enter into space and time into the human predicament as one of them, then that's not illogical. That's perfectly within 
what God is able to do. We know that in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now this is rather interesting, that Jesus was raised in Nazareth. How much time do we know that Jesus spent in Bethlehem? He was born in Bethlehem. And then there's this psychopath, remember? He says, I've heard. Okay. Um, Jesus didn't spend much time there. So this gets even not just specific with the people group who Jesus would be born to. This this is basically like you've got a guy who's raised in Franklin County his whole life, and he has this girl, and and she has this this child, and but that child's going to be born in New York. It's like what in New York or in Kansas or in Florida? It's just like that. That doesn't. I mean, if you're if you're just giving variables and possibilities, then you wouldn't choose where he didn't live. They lived in Nazareth, but they had to go to the hometown of Bethlehem to pay the taxes. And it just so happened, right, that during that specific time of going there because they didn't have e-file for their Roman taxes that they had to go but it was then that Jesus was born which fulfills prophecy in the Old Testament now let's stop right here and address the issue of open theism open theism is the viewpoint that says that God doesn't know the future but he's learning about it now, God's really smart. Will we all agree with that? Okay, God's smart. He knows a lot. He, he can do math and so forth. Um, but God, having a lot of skills, a lot of wisdom, brilliance, is learning about the future so that he can make really well-adjusted judgment calls, kind of like a stockbroker who's good at what he does, making calls about what's going to happen. How do you really have all of these prophecies fulfilled if it's just an issue of trying to call shots that may happen, wouldn't that make God a little bit reckless? Even if he has a quote-unquote good shot. But what we find in the Bible is that God not only knows what's going to happen, God is so much in control that he is working all things together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So that for me, I hope it's for all of us, the fact of the sovereignty of God that is seen through prophecy. You say, Jeff, what's one reason why you believe in the sovereignty of God? Prophecy. Because you can't have prophecy be prophecy, because if you miss it, then it's not prophecy. It's calling up someone on a 1-800 line saying, tell me my fortune. And they say, as we covered on Sunday morning a few weeks ago, you're going to have a really big event happen in your near future. We all do, Right. It's too general, it's too vague. But if God knows what's going to happen, and he's so powerful that he's working all things together, then I can have confidence that even when I go through difficult times, God is in control. And he loves me, and I know that how? Primarily because of what Jesus has done for me. I know that God is able to deliver me because of what Jesus has done. He has been raised from the dead, and because of that, I can know that it's not just a bunch of stuff that you see on TV, but he is coming again in a day in the future. So between the cross, the old school W.A. Criswell, preacher from First Baptist Dallas years ago, between the cross and the crown, that's where we live. 
And we can trust that the crown is coming, King Jesus is returning, because we can see the cross. That's primarily how we know God is powerful and God is love. So number seven, and I'm not sure if we're going to get through uh, all of these, but number seven, Messiah would, it is such a good sound to hear the flipping of notes when we're studying God's word. It's just awesome. Number seven, Messiah would be worshipped by wise men and given gifts. Isaiah chapter 60, scattered verses there in the first nine, um, specifically there in verse three. I'll I'll read verses uh, three, six, and nine. The Bible says, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring what? Gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news and the praises of the Lord. Verse 9, For the coastlands shall hope for me, and the ships of Tarshish first shall bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. When you're in Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 through, 9 through 11, the Bible says, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced and exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, we all celebrate the birth of a child. Such an awesome, amazing thing to see a little child. But how many children do we know who foreign dignitaries, foreign leaders, these were the wise men, the scholars of the ancient East, okay? Like top dogs from Oxford and Cambridge and Yale and all of these Ivy League places, they all come, the intelligentsia of that world that was outside the Roman Empire, they all come and they bow down before this child. And somebody remind me, who were the parents and what were their occupations? Joseph was a carpenter. And Mary was just a young Jewish girl. I mean, it's very possible, and economists will tell you this today, that even in traditional cultures today, especially in the ancient world, it was only the rich that had money. That means that you could be a poor person and never actually see money. Your whole economic transaction had to do with transaction of, you know, I'm going to trade you this chicken or these chickens for this goat and this egg for this this loaf of bread and so forth. These are people who were on the bottom strata of the socioeconomic ladder, and yet these kings come and bow down before them. Now this, once again, little application. That with Jesus, he is with the lowliest of the low. He associates, as it says in Romans chapter 12, it's a command to associate with the lowly. Very convicting for me. I love being around people. I love people. But we all love being around people who give us energy, right? Our friends. But the Bible says associate with the lowly. Those who have nothing to give you. Those who don't have homes that they can entertain you in. Jesus not only associates with the lowly, but he brings low the highest. And these guys, you know, we three kings, we don't know how many there were. Remember that, right? We don't know how many there were. There was gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So there were three gifts. But there's nothing in Scripture that says how many there actually were. So it could have been a whole entourage. We just don't know. 
We know that it was plural. There were kings, these leaders, but they come before Jesus. Number eight, Messiah would be in Egypt for a time. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. The Bible says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. One note on this, there are some skeptics that will say that the New Testament writers actually took the Old Testament out of context. They'll say that Matthew actually was mistranslating what Hosea meant, what these prophets meant. But here's what the skeptic does that's wrong. The skeptic, 2,000 years later, is able to say that someone within Hebrew culture or moved by several hundred years doesn't know what he's talking about when this skeptic more than likely doesn't read or speak Hebrew and is removed from the situation for well over 2,000 years. Don't you think that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John would have a better grasp on the Old Testament maybe than we do? But then again, we live in the 21st century. We have computers. We know everything. You see, that's the assumption that if something doesn't make sense to us in the way that we think and we process, then therefore it has to be wrong. Or could it be that those who are closer to the source had a better idea? I think that that's, that's a better option. Now, Matthew 2 speaks of Jesus. Uh, they, his parents left and fled to Egypt in order to, uh, to be saved from Herod's, Herod's insanity. Number nine, the Messiah's possessions would be gambled for at his execution. Psalm chapter 22, verse 18, the Bible says, This is David. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Some of this sounds like David, but then some of it gets very, very interesting. Go to the next point in number 10. Psalm 22 and verses 14 through 17. David writes, I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. Just a broken piece of pottery. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. What does this sound like? Crucifixion. But yet David was living around 1000 BC. All right. Crucifixion was not invented until several hundred years after that by the Persians and then the Romans adopted it from the Persians, spread it around the whole known world. So how would David even know about this and how would David apply that to himself? He couldn't. It's called a prophecy. But yet that's what the New Testament writers reference when they speak of the death of Jesus. And what usually is the verse that we go to in the Old Testament when we talk to Jewish people about how Jesus is the Messiah? Isaiah what? 53. Okay. And our Jewish friends say that that's not referring to one man, but it's referring to the nation of Israel. Well, it does refer to the beard being torn out, And there's probably not a reference to where all of the beards of all Jewish men have been torn out. Okay, And we're not not trying to make fun, right? There's probably not a reference to where every single Jewish person has gone through what it refers to in those verses in Isaiah chapter 53. So if you're talking with a Jewish person, they give you that objection from Isaiah 53, go to Psalm 22. Because you've got crucifixion prophesied at a time when crucifixion didn't even exist. 
But yet God knew that it would exist, and he gave that to David, because David was prophesying about the Messiah who would come. We find this fulfilled in Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 33. The Bible says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, or Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Luke 22, 22, the Bible says, For the Son of Man goes as it has been. Do you have that note? What's the word? Determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. This is the strongest. It's a perfect passive participle. All right. It's like a continuous saying. This has happened. It has been prophesied to happen. But yet God meant for Jesus to endure that suffering. So let's stop right here and say if God intended and planned for his son to endure suffering Sometimes we can get very surprised when we're following his son and we endure suffering. We're following the suffering one. Isaiah 53, when we look at our Bibles and the margins, it usually says the suffering what? Servant. So we're following the suffering servant. So let's not be surprised when God sometimes may bring suffering into our life so that that can be a springboard to let people know that Jesus is real. And finally, as we bring this to a close, and this is absolutely a record in the history of Rocky Mount Baptist Church. Ever since I've been preaching here, we got through all of our stuff. I don't know what's happening. But number 12 is that the Messiah would rise again. Psalm 16.10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption or physical decay. Luke chapter 24 goes through... Beautiful picture of the ladies at the tomb. The Bible says, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? That's awesome. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified, and on the third day, what? Help me out. Rise. And they remembered his words. And may it be that we remember the words of Jesus, that we can use this not just to lead people to faith in Christ, but we would remember to say, you know what, Lord, I've heard your word in sermons, but help me to remember it. Any observations, points you'd like to bring out? They say that in Hosea 11 um, is referring to the nation. And the New Testament writer kind of just pulls that out of context and interprets it as Jesus. But Jesus is the representative of the Jewish people. And especially through the writings of Paul, Paul speaks about in Christ. And he is the one who has created the new Israel, which is an Israel by faith, not just ethnicity, but... Good question. Anything else? Talk about how specific God's prophecies are. A lot of the stuff in the Suffering Servant Song and in Psalm 22 reads like a reporter's on the scene at the crucifixion mm. reporting on mm. it. It's that close to it. Yes. No doubt that if we didn't have copies of Isaiah 
That's an excellent point. And the, and the fact that we have copies older than that, of course, just verifies the... Mm-hmm. And that's actually what a lot of skeptics try to do. They try to date the Old Testament as occurring after the fact, especially in Daniel. Because Daniel foretells about Alexander the Great taking over their known world, and the Medes and the Persians and the Romans, and especially these extremely liberal scholars, they say there's no way that that could be before it happened. Why? Because they're closed to the evidence of God actually existing. But if we're open to the evidence, and it was before the event, then we could say maybe these prophecies point to something larger than what I think is. And that thing that is larger is that God is real and He's revealed Himself through Scripture. So never let anybody intellectually browbeat you into thinking that you have... You use this phrase, Ben, checked your brain at the door when you've come to Christ. We have nothing to be ashamed about being followers of Christ intellectually. But remember, that's not the ultimate point. The ultimate point is brokenness and repentance before God and receiving His love.